This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we'll hear from one of the leading federal whistleblower attorneys who interprets a recent Supreme Court decision and the implications of the dissenting vote. But first, the Office of Personnel Management wants agencies to review their employee assistance plans, programs that offer psychological and substance abuse treatments. For details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with OPM research psychologist Jordae Taswell. This program kind of was part of an original project named OPM's EAP revitalization effort. And through this effort, we wanted to recommend a way to rebrand EAPs that were consistent with the government's goal of being a model employer. So traditionally, EAPs have several uh services that are offered, such as mental health counseling and substance use treatment services, financial and legal services. However, uh, there are additional services in the areas of health and wellness that are typically not offered or seen in these programs. And we've noticed that some agencies are just kind of being leaders in this area and have adapted new programs that are, are creating a more comprehensive approach which is what OPM is seeking to do with this guidance. We want to look at the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of an employee's health and wellness to really provide them with the most comprehensive arena of supports that are available. And how do you imagine that providing those extra resources is going to help employees in other areas like engagement, satisfaction, productivity? Do you see this kind of work as tying back to broader workforce goals? Absolutely. When it comes to one's productivity and satisfaction at work, it's directly related with your mental and physical wellness. So sometimes there are areas of our life where we need a little bit of personal development as well as professional development. And these employee wellness services can really help an employee to hone in on those areas and provide them with additional support, which can in turn lead to greater productivity and help agency employees meet the mission of their agency. And can you tell me more about what really went into putting together this guidance? What were some of the discussions that you had? Who were you engaging with um, certain stakeholders or other people that really went into the design or creation of the new guidance? To begin, we hosted a series of targeted focus groups with experts in psychology and health sciences, as well as work-life and EAP coordinators across various federal agencies, such as Veterans Affairs, HHS, DHS, and DOL, amongst others, and we had discussions about the weaknesses and areas of improvement for EAP and wellness programs. We also discussed the attitudes employees across agencies tend to have towards EAPs. So if an agency noted that their EAPs tend to be more well-received across employees, we discussed what those agencies may be doing differently in order to determine some best practices. We also spoke with several EAP vendors to assess how these vendors gauge the success of a program as well as to gauge how agencies provide feedback to vendors and then in turn how vendors utilize this feedback. So you just mentioned that you looked at some agencies who have best practices or employees who received these programs well. Can you tell me a little bit more what were some of the factors at those agencies that really led to employees feeling positively towards the programs that you're hoping to replicate on a larger scale? 
Well, some of these agencies already kind of had a mission which revolved around health and wellness, for example, NIH. And so uh, at NIH, they are currently offering several programs and resources, um, and they also are, you know, trying to create a workplace culture which really values employee wellness and well-being. And in speaking with their work-life coordinators, we were just able to kind of highlight a couple of key components that we could adapt in this guidance to really make it a comprehensive guidance for all federal employees. And another part of the guidance talks about agency leaders and their role in creating the right environment for this type of program. How do you see that role for agency leaders in making sure that employees first know that the program exists in the first place and then encouraging them to actually take part in it? So agency leaders are gifted with a very unique opportunity to inspire inclusive work cultures, which prioritize employee wellness and can really help set the standard for creating and maintaining an environment which normalizes conversations surrounding topics that may have historically had a bit of a negative stigma attached to them, such as mental health and mental health treatment. Our agency leaders can also be key in dispelling false myths associated with wellness services. So we're really recommending that these agency leaders continuously think about the accessibility component of employee wellness resources within their agency to ensure ease of access to and awareness of these tools and supports across the agency. And what are some of the myths that you're hoping agency leaders can help dispel specifically? For one, a lot of people tend to kind of have an outdated understanding of EAPs since they did traditionally originate as substance use treatment services with mental health counseling. However, today they've really grown and evolved to encompass so many more services and resources that sometimes employees are just not aware of these tools that are available at them. Agency leaders can also be key in dispelling myths associated associated with security clearance, such as, you know, if you utilize a mental health service, that suddenly your security clearance is going to be revoked. And we want agency leaders to, you know, tell their employees that this is simply not the case. There are very, very strict guidelines when it comes to that. If an employee is, you know, potentially of harm to themselves or others, but outside of those very, very small factors, generally this is never the case. And aside from using agency leaders to help kind of spread the word and encourage employees to take advantage of this when uh, it's needed, what other ways are you and OPM in general looking to make employees more aware that these resources are available? Are there certain methods of communication where you're looking to get in touch with employees more? So we're currently looking to modernize our employee wellness page to facilitate easier and more direct access to various resources and supports for employees in one centralized space. However, we'll definitely follow up on some additional strategies on how we intend to spread awareness on these services and resources. And I wanted to touch on one other part of the guidance that um, I found pretty interesting. It talks a little bit about, um, you know, things like cultural sensitivity and the role of uh, maybe diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, which I know is another uh, big priority for OPM in general. So I was wondering if you could lay out a little bit more specifically, how, how did you think about DEIA and that initiative when you were designing this new guidance on employee wellness? Great question. So this guidance provides criteria for agency leaders um, that kind of center around 
um, creating reasonable accommodations, using effective communication, uh, physical accessibility and compliance with the 50, Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. In addition, under the new Cultural Competency Services Act uh, component of EAP services, resources and supports for underserved communities and training areas and cultural and ethnic awareness are also addressed, which ties in directly in our goal to foster a culture of inclusion at OPM. So these resources now should also include referrals and access to external resources for transgender, gender nonconforming, and non-binary employees. And are there ways that you're going to be measuring progress or success of the program and any plans to maybe make changes along the way as you see fit? That's a wonderful question. Since employee wellness programs are executed at the agency level, it's ultimately up to each federal agency to measure the success of their program. However, we do provide recommendations for evaluating the success of wellness programs, such as monitoring key performance indicators, which can assist agencies in objectively gauging the effectiveness of these programs. So if there is, for example, an agency who maybe a few months down the road is struggling to kind of you know, get the word out or encourage employees to take advantage, and maybe they're missing some of those key performance indicators, what is the role of OPM to kind of step in or help that agency, and how, what does that relationship really look like? So OPM's work-life team is always open to providing guidance. Um, if agencies reach out and email us at worklife at OPM, our team is always willing to consult and, you know, speak with agencies about problems that they may be having. But that's something that we'll address as those issues arise, if they arise. The president's management agenda did mention um, a bit about the importance of mental health and employee wellness. Is that something that, you know, this work kind of ties back to the PMA or is there some sort of relationship between the two here? Absolutely. The new employee wellness guidance directly relates to PMA Goal 2.3, which notes that agencies will promote awareness of employee well-being and support initiatives that extend beyond the workplace. We provide recommendations for agency leaders on how to overcome major barriers to employee wellness program usage, such as structural or attitudinal barriers to aid agencies in facilitating increased awareness and utilization of wellness resources. And I know that we we may have touched on this a little bit already, but what is the end goal of this new federal employee wellness uh, guidance and the, the kind of updated program? What are you hoping agencies and employees get out of it at the end of the day? Our end goal is to see the integration of a holistic approach to employee well-being, which emphasizes the importance of an employee's physical, mental, and emotional health, and to influence a culture across agencies which remains adaptive and responsive to the needs of the federal workforce. Can you offer anything on a personal note of, you know, why this work is important to you and what you're kind of getting out of the, the process of redesigning or, you know, getting to be very hands-on in, in the new guidance here? Since my um, master's degree was in IO psychology with a concentration in diversity and social change, I'm really, you know, pleased to be able to work on a team that, you know, created this employee wellness guidance and have the opportunity to kind of, you know, reflect on some best practices of wellness and an include some of those DEIA initiatives to ensure that there are supports for all employees. Anything else that you wanted to add or anything you feel that you missed in telling me? 
I think the final takeaway would just be that we encourage our agency leaders to promote these resources on a proactive rather than a reactive basis so that employees can maintain their mental health on a consistent basis. Jorday Taswell, a personnel research psychologist at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll take a short break, then hear from D.C. whistleblower attorney Steve Cohn of Cohn, Cohn and Colapinto on a recent Supreme Court case. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. A recent Supreme Court case dealt with a piece of the law concerning KETAM False Claims Act claims. KETAM is when a whistleblower sues on behalf of the government and receives a share of any eventual settlement. I got the rundown on this case from whistleblower attorney Steve Cohn. The False Claims KETAM is a unique type of law because it lets a whistleblower stand in for the federal government to protect the government from fraud. So the whistleblower can initiate a case and pursue a case against a fraudster, even if the federal government doesn't get involved. It's a historic procedure, goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. It was used extensively in the colonies. And I think the first Congress of America passed 15 of these quitam type laws. So that's the issue. But the issue was, if the Justice Department, if the United States wants to throw the case out, what are the rights of the whistleblower? And at the bottom line, it's government money. So the whistleblower is trying to protect the government. But what happens if the government says, we don't want that protection, we want the case dismissed? That was what was before the Supreme Court. All right. And so in this case, then, it was a case where the government decided not to get involved. Exactly. The government moved to have the case dismissed and the whistleblower objected and said they just can't walk into court and have the case thrown out. The statute gives the government the authority to do that, but there's supposed to be a hearing. So the question is, can the judge overrule the Justice Department's decision? What's the purpose of the hearing? That's what was before the court, but that's not the issue today. Well, what did the court decide, though, just so we know? Sure. So the court decided that the government can have a case dismissed early on, and that there's no dispute about that. But once the government says they don't want to participate in a case, you know, that they walk out without dismissing it, could they come back? A year later, after the whistleblower has spent thousands and thousands of dollars litigating a case, could they walk in and say, toss the case? And what the court decided was the answer was yes, with a caveat. They applied a basic rule of civil procedure that lets a party have a case thrown out and sets up some guideposts. So at the end of the day, they didn't give the United States the complete authority to throw a case out. But if you read between the lines, 
the United States would be able to have dismissed almost every single case they wanted to, applying the standard that the court set forth. And is that standard difficult? I mean, is this good for whistleblower cases or bad for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's our view. It's almost neutral because it very rarely comes up. I mean, this is one in a hundred, one in a thousand. So what was going on here, what the court had before them was a very narrow question applied to a very narrow set of cases. But that's not what occurred. All right. We're speaking with Stephen Cohn. He's a whistleblower attorney with the firm Cohn, Cohn, Colapinto. And this was an eight to one ruling. And it's the one justice dissent by Justice Clarence Thomas that's got you worried. Exactly. So Clarence Thomas does two things in his dissent. First, he says, you can't just throw out the whistleblower's case if you read the statute and the rules of procedure. So the first half looks like it's expanding whistleblower rights. But then he comes in with the curveball. He says, however, if what I say is true, and if what the eight to one majority said is true, we have a constitutional problem and the quitam provision may have to be thrown out in its entirety. From the founding of the republic. Yes, all the quitam laws, but also all other types of laws that empower citizens to defend rights. The most obvious is something known as a citizen suit, where citizens can file environmental suits against polluters to enforce environmental laws, even if the federal government is hostile. And what he's saying is, is this concept that only the president can enforce all the laws. We're not a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He's rejected that. And it's a government of the president, by the president, for the president. Or at least of the executive branch. Yeah, exactly. what, What was his reasoning? What was the constitutional basis of his saying so? Okay, so the Constitution says Congress can enact laws. Great like the False Claims Act, like citizen suit. It also has another provision that says the executive will enforce the laws. The question is, is only the executive authorized to enforce the laws or can Congress empower the people to help enforce the laws? And if so, what are the guardrails? That's really the question and the concept that Only the executive can enforce the law, from my point of view, is not just authoritarian in nature, but is in complete and total conflict with the founding of the republic, the actions of Congress for 250 years, and the very principle of a government of the people, by the people, for the people, period. All right. But that was a single dissent and the other eight justices of all political stripes, if you want to put it that way, were of a different mind in this particular case. Are you worried that if a constitutional challenge was brought, there might be more people joining Justice Thomas? Because this first case, you said, was very narrow. But if it was a general constitutional case, then you think it might flip? Well, that is where it gets even more troubling, because 
this issue was not raised by any party in the case. Justice Thomas just came up with it in whole cloth, came up with his opinions on it without one brief being filed, without one issue being raised, and then two other justices who were in the eight group majority concurred with Thomas that the entire False Claims Act may be unconstitutional. But that's so not what they were considering. They were just simply voting for the merits of this narrow yeah. case then. Exactly. So it's kind of like when the Supreme Court issues a decision, you have the majority, you need five. That's the controlling precedent. But any judge can then write a concurring opinion which is kind of their opinion. It's not controlling on the court, but it's letting everyone know what's coming next. It's a message to parties what to do, how to mold future cases. And you can do that through a dissent or a concurrence. And that's what happened here. What you will now see are constitutional challenges to uh, False Claims Act cases across the country and that will result within a year or two of the Supreme Court hearing this case. And what's at stake is not just whether we're government of the people, but all other similar laws. And the big hit will be in the environmental area for citizen suits. So you can begin to see what might occur here. This sea change of like on the one side, corporations that don't want people meddling in their profits, exposing their fraud, filing cases against pollution. And on the other hand, the Chamber of Commerce and all their big business allies fighting to squash the ability of people to challenge their practices. And this really puts the democratic process at a real risk. I forget the Supreme Court justice that said the law is what we say it is, but it sounds like this is something that you expect to come up. Yes. So what's critical here is the Quitam process is hundreds of years older than the founding of the Republic. It was a basic, well-established, unquestioned law enforcement tool that all the colonies were using that was clearly understood by every founding father, every founder of the United States. There were 15, I believe, could have even been more in the first Congress of the United States. This is how they were looking to enforce the laws. There has never been, for 200 years, this never was questioned. Every court that has looked at it since has rejected it. Yet, all of a sudden, without any briefing, Without any warning, three justices stand up and say, we have to go look at this historic practice. I guess now it's wait and see. It's going to be trench warfare. <laughs> Attorney Steve Cohn of Cohn, Cohn, Colapinto of D.C. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week with more on federal pay, benefits, and anything else affecting your work life. Find much more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Until then, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife. Leadership Today 
especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.